Heavenly Father, we just lift up Terry right now. Um, God, we just thank you for this opportunity that he um, gets to just go rub shoulders with other believers in other parts of the world. Um, I just pray that you would also just protect him um, physically and um, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, God, that you would just um, let your grace cover him. Um, Keep him well, keep him strong, um, keep his mind sharp. And I just pray that... um, God, you would give him words of wisdom, that you would give him visions um, and words of knowledge for those around him. And um, I just pray that you would knock his socks off. Um, let this just be a trip that um, is unforgettable because your spirit was so palpable. And um, the work that he is seeing your spirit do um, with other brothers and sisters um, around the world would just um, God, be branded on his heart. And um, I just pray that you would allow him to be your hands and feet wherever he goes. Um, I pray that he would spread laughter, that he would spread joy, and um, he would just be working to build up your kingdom in your precious name. And we also just pray that you would protect Lynn's while he is away and continue to just um, heal her body physically. You know, she's been struggling with colds and whatnot. And I just pray that um, she would just sense your spirit with her protecting her and just bringing comfort to her. In your precious name, amen. Hello, everyone. Um, I'd like to introduce you to my wife. Um, this is, she's back, which means that we are healthy. Um, and it probably says a lot about how life has gone with children and that we're like, lice, yeah. <laughs> So much less than so many other things we've had to deal with, so. Um, but yes, there are lice in the church. Get your kids checked. Uh, um, and your spouse, apparently. Um, all right, so we are continuing on in a series looking at the Great Commandment and Great Commission. Uh, this is the third week of what has turned into a long introduction. I have no idea how long the actual series is, so I'm really hoping it's longer than six weeks. If not, it'd be half introduction. Uh, which is kind of like driving two hours to get somewhere to stay for 45 minutes then driving back, um, which I hate. I do. Um, As we said at the start of this, I'm fun. Um, (laughs) So we're looking at what the life of a disciple is through these ideas of the Great uh, Commandment and Great Commission. Um, As you know, I hope, the vision of this church is to live as disciples in Los Angeles. Um, The funny thing is, I mean, living as disciples is essentially like being Christians in Los Angeles. So we took the broadest possible statement for what we're supposed to be as a church, and we basically just said, we're going to do it here. Um, But we do want to talk about what it means to be disciples, and we know we take that being disciples partially from the Great Commission which is to go into the world making disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and instructing them to do all that Jesus has taught. We see ourselves as disciples, as people who need to be instructed in all that Jesus has taught. We don't see like this is something we're like, we're the disciples, we're not gonna go out there and teach everybody all the stuff that we have figured out because we've got it. We actually look and go, we are people who also need to be instructed in all that Jesus has taught challenge, as we, I said two weeks ago, is he says a lot. 
and it's hard to narrow down except for he does it for us somewhat. He, when asked about what the greatest of the commandments is, says that it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes a step beyond that and says, not only are these the greatest, but they're the foundation on which all the other commandments are built. So the other commandments are, in a sense, an application of this. The law and the prophets sits on this idea of loving God with all that you are and seeing your neighbor's welfare as something that is equal in pursuit as your own. Not putting yourself below your neighbor, but actually going, my neighbor, like me, is a person, and I really want them to succeed the same way I want myself to succeed. I want them to flourish the same way I want my, myself to flourish. And with these two, we get in the great commandment an idea of how we are to live, that we're people whose lives are to be shaped by love for God and love for our neighbor. And we also get an idea of what we are to do. Um, and as I told you two weeks ago, I wasn't sure what I was talking about in the third week Terry gave me. But what I, there's an element that I realize is unaddressed. Because we know what a disciple how a disciple is supposed to live, and we know what a disciple is supposed to be doing as a collective group, the church. The question is, who is a disciple? Who is this life for? So to ask the question straightforward, who can be a disciple? And I know the good answer, and the answer that's probably going to your heads wondering why I'm even asking the question is everyone. Everyone can be a disciple, and yes and amen, very true. There is not a limitation on who can become a disciple in terms of race, ethnicity, social class, sex. There's no limitation on that. The doors are essentially thrown wide open so that everyone can come and be a disciple. And nothing I am gonna say following this in any way is meant to undercut that. But I think we sometimes, in our desire to hold very firm to that biblical truth that everyone can become a disciple, stop asking the question a couple, stop and our answer a couple steps early. We do say that everyone can become a disciple, and that is absolutely true. But it doesn't fully answer who can be a disciple. We stop at becoming a disciple, and that's where you get churches that do altar calls or churches that with no follow-up and where the same people get saved every single week, or you get a crusade where there's no follow-up. And I know that's not, and I'm not just knocking churches that do altar calls or crusades where people come and hear the gospel preached because those things have value. But when there's no follow-up, as in many times there's not, essentially it becomes a checkbox, and the answer that is being asked by the church is who can become a disciple without asking what, who can be a disciple. It's possible I've confused all of you. So I want to look though, to maybe come at a different angle. Yeah, it's possible I've confused all of you. So let's do communion. Um, <laughs> no, but I've, I wanna look and at, let me just give examples of what I mean when I say who can be a disciple. Because we're talking about disciples are people who do what Jesus instructs them. So let's just look at what we get instructed to do. These are some ideas of relationships we can have. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So if you got out the person out there who's trying to hurt you, the instructed response is to love them and pray for them. If they slap you, 
If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one to him also. If they sue you, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. How are we supposed to approach money? You cannot serve God and money. Or the always popular, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. With this instructions coming to us, how are we supposed to feel about all of this? Rejoice in the Lord always. Or do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. Is not life more than food? I mean, it's just so simple. Don't be anxious. Or my favorite, given to people who are going to be persecuted. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. See, if a person is coming for you, you've been dragged before the court, don't be afraid. They can only kill your body. And then he gets into a relationship that would provoke that possible fear. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and prize of possessions is not from the Father. Or as Peter put it when we were studying 1 Peter, live for the rest of the time in the flesh, the rest of your life, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And as Jesus puts it in his, it actually is encouraging, but encouraging in a Jesus-y way. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, the world hates you. These are hard statements, and this is what's asked of what a person who is to be a disciple. And you can tell how hard these statements are, because oftentimes when these things get preached, a solid chunk of the sermon time is given over to telling why they don't apply. As though there's a massive risk in the American church of it giving away too much of its money, or us being too sexually pure, or of us not being too enamored with the machines of power in this age. You take an example, like the one that commonly comes up with, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and Jesus says, and come follow me. Now, it usually gets pointed out repeatedly that that is given to a particular person who's struggling with a particular thing, and that is 100% true. There is no guilt, there is no expectation as Christians that we are meant to go sell everything that we have. But oftentimes that gets emphasized so much that we miss the actual blow of this, which is we are called to follow a person who asks of things people like, asks things of people like, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And the chances are we should hear that more firmly than we should hear why it probably doesn't apply to us right now. We live in the wealthiest society in history, in a church that's had an ongoing testimony and a scripture that speaks of the dangers of wealth to our soul. But those messages get softened. And they get softened partially because if you're trying to bring people to the point of conversion, those sorts of messages push people away. 
Jesus saw this repeatedly. Um, the, sec- the passage that I'd originally asked Heidi to read before I realized my sermon was way too long, um, surprise, was Jesus in John 6, where he gets a horde of people coming to him to follow him, excited about who he is, and Jesus turns around and basically gives hard teaching after hard teaching until they all leave. And he turns to the 12 who are still here. He's like, why are you here? And Peter gives the least supportive answer he possibly could give, which is like, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. I mean, I, what you just said is crazy. But you do have the words of life, so we're sticking this out for a bit. But that's what he, Jesus does. And we as a church can usually try and explain them away, or we can make them something that this becomes the spiritual life of the super-Christians. They can attain to that. The rest of us can just kind of muddle along. But when we consider this, of what, that's what I'm trying to ask when I ask the question of who can be a disciple, who can live out these sorts of things. When we talk about the Great Commandment and the Great Commission, who is that intended for? What is expected to, that person expected to be like? And I completely lost my place. There we go. Unless you think that I'm being the difficult one here, um, I always like to let Jesus speak. Um, <laughs> he's, he throws the gauntlet down far harder than I do, generally speaking. Um, this is, I'm going to turn to uh, Mark, Mark 8. Um, before I get there, just to let you know where this sits in the book of Mark, this is the midpoint of Mark. So as you can tell, Mark is 16 chapters. This is the end of Mark 8, so we are basically at, like, if you were to cut Mark in half, this is where you would make that cut. The first half of Mark is Jesus in Galilee. He's doing miracles, healing people, getting a crowd of disciples to him um, while telling stories that basically confuse everybody. After this middle section, he turns from where he is and heads towards Jerusalem, where he will be arrested, crucified, and rise again. This is the turning point of the book of Mark. It's set apart by two really weird stories because you have the story of Jesus where he heals a guy. There's a guy who's blind, and Jesus comes to him, and he heals him. But, and we're talking about Jesus who can basically talk to a storm, and it goes quiet. He heals, the, and he can heal multiple people from a distance. This guy, he heals, and it, like, doesn't take the first time. He basically says he can, he can see, but his vision's still blurry. And he, sees, he says he sees men like trees walking, which basically sees blurry stumps moving around. And then Jesus heals him, and his vision goes clear. And on the other end, you have the story of the father who has the deaf and mute spirit in his son that's throwing his son into the fire, and the disciples have no idea what to do with this. They can't do anything. And the guy's like, if you could, and Jesus is like, if I could. And the man says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So that sits around this center section. And then you have two revelations. You have the transfiguration. I found out taking my daughter to the bathroom that today is Transfiguration Sunday, conveniently. This is when Jesus goes up on the mountain and appears in glory with Elijah and Moses talking to him and Peter sticks his foot in his mouth. You also, on the other end of this, have another revelation where, and this is actually where I'll pick up reading, 
Uh, this is Mark 27, I believe, 827. I need bigger print in my Bible. I'm getting old. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. We know from other, uh, it's not like Jesus is telling him not to say anything because he got it wrong. We know from the other gospels that Peter gets it right. Jesus is the Christ. That's kind of a given in the story. So we have two revelations. So you got two word healings, two revelations, and two halves of the book. And then we have this section of the story. Peter's just gotten it right. I guess Peter also sticks his foot in his mouth in this one too, as I said, <laughs> as he does. And he began to teach him, that is Jesus, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he says this, said this plainly. That needs to be pointed out because Jesus does not say things plainly in the first half of the book. And it's not a knock on Jesus' teaching. It says he doesn't say things plainly. And Peter took him aside, so that is, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And this is the part where I wanted, that I wanted to get to. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? But what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So who does Jesus say can be his disciple? The person who, well, it's funny because he answers the question, if you want to follow me, follow me. But he issues two things in the middle of that. If you want to follow me, deny yourself and take up your cross. Now we have turned bearing your cross into an idiom, which usually means the annoying person at work. But the idea here is taking up an instrument of death. Remember, Jesus goes to the cross not to be irritated. He goes to the cross because people are putting him to death. So the idea here is, if you want to be my disciple, follow me. Deny yourself. Die to the world. Follow me. So you can see, when Jesus says, who can be a disciple? Who can follow after me? Again, it can come from any sort of person. Who can do it? The person who denies themselves and dies to this world. And that's where you get the crazy things that we get asked to do in this book. Why they become possible. Who can love their neighbor even when their neighbor's trying to kill them? The person who has died to this world and is so enamored with God and their treasure sits with God. And they see in the person who's coming for them another person who bears the image of God. And they want that person to thrive as well. And we see this modeled in Jesus being put to death saying, Father, forgive them. 
but it has at its root a person who has died to the world. If I haven't died to the world, if I haven't denied myself, I'm not going to have that response to the person who's coming to kill me. Nor am I going to be okay being in a world that hates me because I resemble the one that it hates. So you see the answer. The person who can do this is the person who has denied itself, who has denied itself, who has denied him or herself, and has died to this world. And the fullness of the life of discipleship comes through that. Unless you think I'm tying these things together unfairly, Jesus puts them more bluntly again. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We're essentially supposed to be like Lot and his family fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah, not looking back. That's the way that story goes. We have Lot's wife who turns back and turns to a pillar of salt because I have no idea. But that's the way that plays out. We generally, and this is where the problem comes, because if this is what it's meant to be a disciple, if this is who can be a disciple, we have a problem. At least I do. Because I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how I can rearrange my sofa for my one bedroom in Gomorrah because it's probably going to be okay. And if we're not supposed to turn backwards, I'm not looking back. The idea is not looking back over your shoulder. I'm usually trying, I spend at least a huge chunks of time, it feels like, literally running backwards, just basically staring at Sodom and Gomorrah, metaphorically, as opposed to facing the direction I'm supposed to be facing. We fail in this consistently. But this is the person who Jesus says can be his disciple. So what are we supposed to do with that? Now, Mark gives us some clues in this. The driving question behind the entire book of Mark is who is Jesus? It is consistently asked again and again and again, and it's asked in all the Gospels, but it animates the narrative of Mark. And as you can tell by me talking about the way Mark's structured, it's an exquisitely structured book. And for as short as it is, he gets a lot of the oomph out of how he's structuring the book and where he's putting things as opposed to just having Jesus talk forever. It's not something I'm down on Jesus talking, but that's the way Mark is structured to try and get those points without having the long speeches. And again, the thing that animates this book, the story of uh, the book, the gospel of Mark, is this question about who Jesus is. Now, the reader is not supposed to be confused. This isn't like a, a mystery book where you're turning, it's a page turner, going, I can't wait to find out who Jesus is while you're reading through it. Because it literally opens with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So it tells you the answer right there in the opening line. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the anointed Messiah, who everybody's been looking for, the Son of God, and then it goes on to tell its story. But the consistent question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You know, as you read it, everyone else is utterly confused. Then we get to this point where Peter says who Jesus is. You can see why it's such a big deal. Question is, if that is the climax, if the question has been, who is Jesus? And Peter gives his answer halfway through the book, it's horribly structured. That's like putting the climax to a movie, and it's to our movie, at the 60-minute mark. The next 60 minutes is probably entertaining for 10 and then boring, because there's nothing driving it forward. And the answer is, 
Well, for one thing, that's not the climax. As much as we want to make a big deal of, what, of Peter's revelation there, it's not the climax. There's three other places where Jesus is really caught out who he is. The opening scene of Mark, the first big thing that happens, he gets baptized. And God speaks from heavens and says, that's my son, and I love him, roughly speaking, paraphrasing. Then, on the other side of this passage I just read, in the transfiguration, when they're all up there, right before Peter sticks his foot in his mouth again, God speaks from the heavens again and says, this is my son, listen to him. So we're getting this, the measure. And then when you actually get to what's the, everybody knows what the climax of the gospel is, it's the cross. So you get to the actual climax. And in a gospel that's written to the Gentiles, so this is written to the Roman world, you finally get a proclamation of who Jesus is that recognizes him as the son of the God, and Mark records it on coming from the mouth of a Roman centurion. Now, he might have no idea what he's talking about, but you finally have, at the climax of the story, the question that has been driving everything forward. He says, this is the Son of God. So that's what's driving this. So why do we have this revelation that actually really does change the story? You go from being in Galilee to being heading towards Jerusalem and his death. And Jesus takes that turning point of Peter's revelation as the thing that actually drives him forward. Why do we have this revelation? What are we supposed to learn from this? What we learn from it is that it's both right and wrong. In actual words, Peter is 100% correct. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. He is the one who has been promised by the prophets. He is the anointed king that has come to usher in the next age. He's the one who has come to break the chains. He's come to take care of the poor. He's come to heal people. He is the Messiah, and Peter sees that. And Peter is also wrong because he comes thinking he knows who the Messiah is. He comes saying, you are the Messiah, but I know what that means. So he comes and places his own set of limitations on Jesus. To some extent, Peter comes and doesn't deny himself because he knows what the Messiah is supposed to do. As a good Jew, he's waiting for the Messiah to come and just slaughter the Romans. Get them out of Jerusalem. They've been an oppressive people who have held us, them captive forever. The Messiah comes to set the Jews free and establish his kingdom. He knows that. And Jesus is like, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. P Peter's like, with you so far? And I'm going to be arrested? And Peter's like, oh, okay, I'll wait. And then they're going to put me to death. Let's go. What I love is they never seem to pick up the fact that he gets resurrected. Like, they just they hear that he gets put to death, and their ears just, like, grind to a halt, and they miss the back half of the statement. But Peter sees this, and he can't take it. And that's what drives that point. Now, what we're supposed to see here, and that's why you get these two healings, you have a person who is standing here, and Jesus sets his vision right, but he doesn't see fully. Peter is a person who has seen, but he hasn't seen fully. Similarly, you have a person who believes, but needs help in his unbelief. Peter is a person who believes, but needs help in his unbelief. And the interesting thing by placing this story here and having this be the, the hinge on which the story turns to head towards Jerusalem, there's a degree to which Jesus goes, this is good enough. 
You're wrong, Peter. You're right, but you're wrong. And you're wrong in a damaging, harmful, deadly way. But I can work with this. Let's go to Jerusalem. <laughs> and what the book of Mark is to some extent designed to do is it drives that question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And finally, we're like, I get it. He's the Messiah. And the book's like, okay, cool. So you, now you need to deny yourself. You need to be died to this world. And the, it goes on, like the entire back half is essentially Jesus just talking about like what they're supposed to do. And generally speaking, it's be humble, serve everyone. And I know you want a position of power, but really you should be last. So it puts that in front of you. It's like, and you can just hear the thud in our hearts. And it's like, so who is Jesus again? And we're like, and it basically says, just keep reading then. And you keep going, you keep drawing in. It basically says, keep reading. And then it gets you to the question, like, okay, I get you some Messiah. And it says those. And again, you, your gears kind of grind to a halt. And it just continuously pushes you forward. So it puts in the middle and still has the revelation coming. Because that's where we are. We have a bit of it, but we don't have all of it. So who is a person who can be a disciple? It's a person who has denied themselves and been put to death. Now the question is, how is Jesus going, this is what this is, but I can work with it? Because it takes a while. I don't know if Peter ever gets there because we don't follow the rest of his story. But when we last see him, he's still not there in the Bible. But Jesus continuously works through him. So what is the thing that Jesus is looking for in a disciple that both manages to take this high bar that we have of being a person who denies themselves and dies to this world and also looks at somebody like Peter and that halfway correct, right in the words but wrong in the intention, understanding of who Jesus is and says, hmm. and that's where I wanted to turn coming closing to the passage that Heidi read. It's a story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. He, um, Nicodemus is a, uh, this is towards the beginning of his ministry, which is why it's in John 3, because they, they all start at 1. But it's in John 3, so it's near the beginning of his ministry. He's a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, so Nicodemus is a fairly important person. He comes to Jesus with an understanding of Jesus, who Jesus is. So it's, to some extent, we again get a similarity to Peter. Nicodemus comes respectful. He's a, he, he recognizes Jesus as a rabbi, and he recognizes Jesus as one who has God with him. Unlike many people, Pharisees who oppose Jesus, who are like, the miracles you do are probably Satan, Nicodemus is like, no, it's God. But he also doesn't come, he also comes using a weasel word, essentially like, we think, we know that people who do the things like you do are from God. And you're kind of like, well, it's just Nicodemus, so who else is he talking about? And essentially it's because he's doing it the same way you would do if you're trying to count yourself and make a statement without actually putting yourself out. It's like, the people I'm hanging out with, we think this. I'm not sure where I am, but we kind of all think this. So he's putting forth this thing because what he is coming to do is to assess Jesus. Nicodemus is a teacher of the law. He's a teacher of Israel. Jesus recognizes that as such. He knows what this kingdom is supposed to be. He knows that a kingdom is coming, that where a Davidic uh, Messiah will come and set things right, and he's coming because he does think there's something to Jesus, and he wants to see if Jesus is the one who lines up with this kingdom. 
to some extent, this is a job interview he's coming to Jesus with. Like he's basically coming and sitting down with Jesus with his like mahogany table in his nice suit and the kingdom corporate offices to see if Jesus is a cultural fit, which is really how a lot of people approach Jesus. It's how we all kind of daily approach Jesus going, let's see if this part fits into my life today. So he's coming to do this and Jesus answers him, which is funny because he doesn't actually ask a question. Again, Jesus being Jesus. And he says, truly, truly, unless one is born, sorry, he says truly, truly a lot, which is basically Jesus saying, pay attention, guys. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And this flummoxes Nicodemus. Because he's basically, he's coming to assess Jesus. He's coming to say, Jesus, I'll see if you can fit into the kingdom. Sorry, to not see the kingdom of God. And when he hears from Jesus, before he even asks the question, Jesus answers him and says, unless you've been born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And somehow it strikes Nicodemus. It throws him off. Suddenly the entire control of the conversation is flipped. The guy who thought he was in the corporate office with the mahogany desk interviewing Jesus looks around and realizes like he's in an alleyway in his sweatpants with like a cardboard box in front of him, and he doesn't even work for the company. That's essentially what Jesus does right there. Nicodemus has this entire resume of who he is and what it is, and he's come to assess Jesus in light of this. And Jesus basically goes, that's not what you need. You need to be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. It flips the entire thing over. And he goes on to say things like, if you need to be, uh, that which is born of the spirit is of the spirit, that which is born of the flesh is of the flesh. He says you need to be born of water and of the spirit which is confusing, but he assumes that Nicodemus will understand this because he's an Old Testament teacher, well, Bible teacher at that time. But if you look back at the Old Testament, generally speaking, water is being cleansed. The spirit is breathing life into things. Think valley of dry bones with God breathes and the bones rise up. Or think, going back further, creation where he breathes into Adam and gives life. So essentially he says to Nicodemus, you have your resume, you have the thing that makes you right, what I'm telling you is unless you're born again in a way that cleanses you and completely transforms your way of being into a new life, that doesn't matter. Again, Nicodemus is flummoxed. He's confused and he starts to basically, how can this be? He's already asked how he can get back into his mother's womb. And he the second time simply says, how can these things be? And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness Oh, sorry. If I told, if it, sorry, this is in verse 12. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe when I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus has come to discuss heavenly things. He wants to talk about the kingdom. He wants to assess Jesus in light of this kingdom. And what Jesus is essentially saying, if I can't explain to you how a person like you needs to be transformed in order to even see this, how can we talk about this? How can we talk about the kingdom if you still think what it takes is just being a really good person? If you think basically a good person plus like 10% is the kingdom living, we can't yet talk about what the kingdom life is, and I'm not even sure how you're supposed to test me to see if I line up. Because what he's telling Nicodemus is what actually has to happen is Nicodemus is getting really, really good. And we can take it on credit that Nicodemus probably is a fairly stellar person coming to Jesus. Still not good enough. Because in order to be a person who can deny themselves and take up their cross on a daily basis, in order to be a person who can 
forgive their enemies and seek their good and pray for them while they're persecuting them. In order to be a person who can hold so loosely to this life that they don't care if a person kills them. Not because they're trying to win something, but simply because they care about that person and what they already have. In order to be a person who doesn't mind being completely outcast, it's not this best we can think of plus 10%. It's something completely different. So who can be a disciple? A person who denies themselves and is dead to this world, essentially, or has, this world has died to them. And that sort of person is a person who's been born again. So how does that happen? And trust me, I'm not going to keep going. This isn't like a thousand Russian dolls. Tomorrow, tomorrow morning. And continuing, so, yeah, yeah, you know me too well. This is starting in verse 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is referencing this serpent thing, a story from, I think it's in Numbers, where everybody gets bit by snakes and they're all sick, and the answer is to make a bronze serpent and hold it up. And whoever looks at this serpent will be cured. And he's referencing that, essentially saying, for what ails this world, Nicodemus? For the life that you're trying to get, for what I just told you needs to happen, for the rebirth that's supposed to occur, the way that occurs is I'm held up and you look on me and believe. And we need to understand that belief is not merely mental sense. Simply saying, yeah, Jesus is Jesus doesn't do it. It's looking upon Jesus and saying, I trust this person as my Lord and Savior. That right there is what, is what the new birth comes from. We can go into the mechanisms, but again, I'm not going to go forever down into this. But that's where it comes from. There is something that occurs. So who can be a disciple? It's a person who has looked upon Jesus, who's looked upon Jesus on the cross and believed that this person is their Savior. This believe this person is their Lord. That is a person who has something transformed in them such that a, a rebirth has happened. That rebirth leads to a life where they can eventually deny themselves and take up their cross. And they will be transformed into people where those absolutely insane commandments become something they can do. Now, this is not to say that it's something that happens in a sudden perfection. We don't get to a spot, because I think you could read this and hear this and go, okay, cool. So I look at Jesus on the cross, and I've now been born again, and... I can now go easily deny myself and take up my cross. That doesn't happen. That's usually what leads to people being baptized like six times. What happens is more akin to a seed being planted. A new life is birthed. And no one plants an acorn seed, acorn seed, an acorn in the ground, and then runs out the next day to see the tree. But... Except for Spielman, apparently. But if you put an acorn, a good acorn, in good ground, in good circumstances, though you will not see a tree there the next day, 
there will be a tree eventually. And it's going to be an oak tree, not an apple tree, not a pear tree, not a rose bush, because that's the seed that was planted and it's something that will inevitably drive towards what it's meant to be. The seed that's planted in us at the new birth is one that does prompt transformation. We don't reach the new birth by just trying really hard and being transformed so that we can be reborn. We don't earn it through doing things, but it is the sort of thing that when it is placed within us, it will bear fruit. It will lead to a transformation. It will consistently and persistently move us towards being the sort of person where that life makes sense. It will slowly turn our head around so we're not jogging backwards. It'll make it so loving our enemies becomes more natural. It'll make it so that we can set down our own good and achievements and getting ahead because we want the good of another. That life grows in us. That means a couple things. I mean, first it means that is the route from which we have to start. And it makes no sense to take the commandments of Jesus, to take the great commandment and the great commission and try and force it upon a person who hasn't made the initial step of going, Jesus is where it's at. That's the person who can save me. That man upon the cross is the one who can, I need and actually has experienced a new birth into the life of the, um, with him. All you're doing at that point is foisting legalism upon them and trying to get them to carry a weight they can't. At the same time, on the flip side of that, it also means that, I mean, really the only time we have to worry as well, because I don't want anybody to walk away from this thinking I need to go clean everything up, is if we're in a spot where the transformations that Jesus is bringing about, well, first off, obviously you don't need to be transformed in order to be saved, but also the spot where there should be concern is only really if you're in a spot where the transformations sound terrible. And I don't mean... Also, to be clear, not like you're looking at everyone and going, this sounds fantastic, I just want to do it. But it's simply you're looking at Jesus going, I really don't want to be transformed. Because at that point, what you've tried to do is you've either tried to get an insurance policy or you've tried to somehow get in good with the church. Which is just, that probably made sense 100 years ago. Right now, it's like, you got bad life planning skills. But it is the idea of Jesus as an insurance policy because then she goes, well, I got Jesus done here. Now I'm going to live my life the way that I am because the thing that actually saves us, that spirit that's put within us, should prompt at least some inkling towards being more like Jesus. But it also means we need to be realistic about how this transformation happens both for ourselves and for others. As I said, you put a seed in the ground. It makes no sense to go out and expect to see the fully grown tree the next day. There's slow change. Often it's imperceptible. Yeah, I mean, you can look at it. I mean, once a tree gets to a certain size, you basically can stare at it forever, and you're like, it's, it never grows. But if you were to walk away and come back 10 years later, you're like, okay, I guess it was doing something. And that's to some extent how this works through us. And for that reason, we need to be very careful because there's this culture we are in is not one that pushes for delayed gratification. Christianity is a terrible life hack. <laughs> it's, 
potentially the worst. And I'm a person who likes small things that make immediate impact. Christianity is not that. So we need to, as a people, as much as we can, do things that foster in us that patience and that desire and pray for that to sit with something for the long haul. Because it's kind of like working, I mean, it is kind of like working out where like you work out and I've actually been exercising more, but it bears a little bit of fruit for like, you're like, okay, I feel good for like three weeks. And you're like, and I feel like nothing has changed since then after the first three weeks. And a lot of people at that point, like four days from now, are like, okay, screw this. Nothing changes. And they stop. But the idea, but the truth is small, imperceptible, sometimes backwards, sometimes forward, but over the long haul, things do improve. And when we do things like read scripture, when we do things like dive in for prayer, when we come and push into a community, we sometimes have an impression that the transformation should happen immediately. And when we look at my life and go, I've been doing this for a solid week. I read an entire book of the Bible. Why has nothing changed? It's not going to. Not like, I mean, it does occasionally, which I think God just does just to mess with me. But generally speaking, it doesn't do that. You do this and you dig in in faith that it is going to bear fruit. And then you find out like 10 years later, wait, I'm actually kind of different. I was prompted to read the Psalms because I don't know why again, because I'm not the most poetic of persons. And that is not the book of the book of the Bible that naturally appeals to the way my mind works is the Psalms. But I was led to read them, and I read them for three years of going, this is boring, this is boring, this is boring, that one's kind of cool, this one's boring, this one's boring. And then I went through a divorce, and the Psalms came to life. And what I realized at that point was God had, over those three years, been so actually sowing something into them, even though I was sitting going, why am I reading the Psalms? Why do I feel compelled to read the Psalms? And they, had, they took a life on that they still have to this day but there is a persistence that we need to have. And for that reason, we also need to be encouraging to one another to persist through, and we also need to be quick to call out the actual changes that we see. Now, I'm not saying we just need to become a church of flattery, but one of the helpful things that Becca says to me is she cannot picture me being the way that I used to be. She hears stories about me, and it doesn't make sense to her, which to me, I can take and go, cool, I've changed. Now, I am still arrogant, yeah, I like all the nodding. <laughs> but I'm better than I used to be. I mean, I was something else um, historically. I, I thought quite a bit of myself. Um, I mean, just to be, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever actually said this, but people know how I got saved. I didn't, some people know. I didn't exactly get saved in the church, um, which then led to me reading the Bible by myself, um, typically not sober. And then I got to Revelation, it was like these people coming back, and there was for a moment a legitimate thought of, maybe I am the second coming. It passed quickly. But again, this is the arrogance that I used to live in. <laughs> yeah. My, my sister, my, if my sister heard that, she'd be like, you probably did. Because that's where I was. But there's been slow changes, and I think what we need to be doing is we need to be quick to call out the changes we do see. And I think we can do them in a way that doesn't flatter, because what you can essentially say is you can say, I can see places where God has changed you. I think it can be harmful to say, like, you're being really good at being patient. You are really doing better at humble. But you can say, I can see places where God has made you more humble or where God has made you more patient. 
I can see places where you are, God has enabled you to persevere where you used to quit. That's helpful to people, and we need to hear that because the changes are so slow, and we are basically the person who is constantly staring at our own oak tree, which means we never see the change. And it's not until usually the circumstances change dramatically, like all of a sudden we realize we bump, our oak tree bumps into a branch it hadn't seen before. We're like, oh, wait, I guess I have gotten taller. Or somebody else comes along and says, you've changed actually over the last time. So we need to be that for each other. And finally, we need to take the long view. Because the truth is, as much as we change and as much as we grow, we are going to fall short. The good news is Jesus came to save us. He came and his death upon the cross covers our sins. So the fact that we fall short of that call that he has for his disciples, his, he covers that. He's also in his obedience. It makes up for the shortcomings of our own obedience. So we find that even though we are stumbling through this, that's why Jesus can look and go, Peter is basically was going the right direction. He's like, okay, we can work on this. That's where we are all living. But he is covering our sins, but we are not going to arrive in this age. I would love to tell, actually, I would just love for myself to think at some point, like in the next 10 years, I'm going to reach the point where I'm like, just praying for all of my enemies and everyone who persecutes me. I have not had a ounce of retribution go through me. Um, I have been rejoicing at all times in the Lord and anxiety is down to zero. But it's not going to happen. We're going to make strides and we're going to make steps forward, which is why we need to take an eternal view because we will reach a point when this life, when that life will be ours. We have in our hearts, in the spirit that has been given to us as part of that new birth, in the spirit that is the seed that has been planted to transform us, we have the down payment and the promise of a life that will be ours. We will live a life that reflects this eventually. We'll live a life that shows Jesus in all that we do. We're going to finally be like him, but it's not until the next age fully. And we need to know that both so we're patient with ourselves, but we also need to know it because that's the goal. That is the goal and what we're longing to accomplish. And we need to set it before ourselves as something we truly will accomplish so that we can keep working towards it, so that we can keep praying, so we can keep turning to God when we have need, so we can keep encouraging us, so we can keep showing up here because we see what actually will come and we'll be patient with the slow progress we make on the way. So who can be a disciple? I mean, fortunately for Peter and fortunately for all of us, it's the people who have seen Jesus, who tr- have seen Jesus and trust him as the Lord and Savior, who have had that new birth come in them, and it has started a transformation and a trajectory of their life that God will see through to the end. Those are the people who can do this and that's the reason why, because we know that's what it is. We can actually look at all of these commandments. We can look at all of these instructions. We can look at all these things and the insanity this book asks of us sometimes. And I use that mostly from natural terms. It's all fantastic. Um, but we can look at what it asks of us and not try to water it down because we know our sins have been covered, because we know our obedience has been filled up, but we know that this is the model to which we are to strive. We should look at this and see the gap and go, Jesus is fantastic. 
not see the gap and go, I need to, well, we can, you can try harder, but not see it and go, I need to get there so that he'll love me. We actually have one, God loved the world, and in the manner in which he loved the world was to send the one who would save us so that we could have this thing put in our heart that will take us all the way through to eternity. As people who have that in us, as people who have that as their longing, it's in that manner that we come to the great commandment, to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And we seek to do it in all that we can. And it's with that transformation that we come to the Great Commission, to go into the world, to make disciples, to spread that seed in that new life, and to instruct people in it. That's what we come to. We come to as people birthed from that not as people who really want to try hard to see a change in this world. Now, I really do want to see a change in this world, but the actual motivation and the actual the seed, again, of all of this growth comes from the spirit that's planted within us, not our own smarts or good looks as we have them. So as we do that, as we look to a life that was transformed up front, that starts all of this for each of us as we look to a path of continual transformation of being nourished in the word and in the spirit that dwells within us. And as we look to a future where we will finally be this thing that we can dream of here, that's when we, we come to the table with that in mind. Because we have something that is proclaiming his death until he returns. We're proclaiming the death that heals us of our sins, that does bring about that transformation and that cleansing that Jesus told Nicodemus we need to have. We come to it for a continual nourishment of continuously saying to ourselves, to God, and to the world that this is the path that I'm on and this is the one that I need to get me there. And we come to it proclaiming his death again and again until he returns because when he returns that we will finally see the fullness of what we long for. So please form a line, which apparently is a thing I say. Um, I don't know how else you get up here. Um, form a line, grab some bread and some uh, juice. I'll pray over us and then um, wish you all well.